because it's working. I had it on the whole time. All right. Thankfully, it wasn't recording. <clears throat> well, this morning we come to Psalm 51. I was going to look at Psalm 86, uh, but I think I'm going to delay that one for a couple weeks because it made sense to look at Psalm 51 when we're reading about David and Bathsheba in our Old Testament reading the last couple weeks. So before us this morning is Psalm 51, the great penitential prayer of David, confessing his sin before the Lord God and asking for his mercy and grace. Well-known psalm, uh, so let's get right into it. Let me read it for us from God's holy word. Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So ends the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word from Psalm 51. As we come before it this morning, let me pray for us. O God, our Father in heaven, bless us now as we come before your word. Speak to us through it. Fulfill the promise that you've made, that it goes out and does not return to you empty. Instead, may it accomplish everything that you purpose for it and be successful in the things for which you have sent it this morning. For ourselves, we ask that you would pour out your Spirit upon us this morning to open our eyes to see and our ears to hear the things that you would have us learn from your Word so that it might become a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Father, again, all of this. We lay before you in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. 
What do you do with your sin? What are you going to do about your sin? How are you going to handle it? How are you going to deal with it? We've talked about this question before, one of three questions that I think every single person on the face of this earth has to answer. What are you going to do about your sin? Who is Jesus? And the third question, do you believe? How do people deal with their sin? How do most people deal with their sin? Well, one thing they do is they call it something else. A mistake. A mistake in action. A mistake in judgment. We see this all the time from politicians, celebrities, famous people, uh, rich people caught in some sort of a public sin. Maybe they'll admit it's a mistake of some kind. Um, Sometimes they'll only go so far as to say, well, I'm sorry I offended you. Not that I did anything wrong, that you got offended by what I did. Kind of a hollow apology. Except to offend somebody in today's culture is really the, the great sin. Another way we talk about sin today, and this is creeping into the church and it it just kind of bugs me a little bit. Instead of calling sin, sin, we call it brokenness. We're broken. We're broken people. Our brokenness. There's some truth in it. We are broken. But it tends to minimize, again, the reality and the nature of, of our sin. It's an epithetic word, so that kind of draws people in. We're all broken in some way, shape, or form. But when the idea of brokenness is used in Scripture, even in this psalm, it's not so much about describing our sin as describing our heart. Our heart is broken because of sin. It's because of our sin that we become broken before God. Brokenheartedness. Sorrow. Other responses we've talked about before over the years, that we try not do our sin by doing more good we can just get that good balance, you know, more favorable than the bad, maybe we can make up for it, pay it forward, that kind of thing. Or the ritualistic sacrifices and rituals and and religious practices of various kinds of religions. But what does a Christian do with sin? How does a Christian respond and deal with sin? Well, we admit it. It's part of the reason we have a confession every single Sunday morning. In our worship, it's part of what we do. We admit, we confess that we are sinners before God and we ask him for forgiveness. And Psalm 51 is a wonderful example of this that we have before us this morning. This famous, well-known psalm of David's repentance after his sin with Bathsheba. I think one of the reasons this psalm is so effective is because David is so brutally honest as the psalms are so often. It reveals David's close relationship with his God. We see in this psalm that David knows who God is. But the other thing David knows, and he knows it very well, he knows his own sin. He knows the extent of it, and he knows the depth of it. David knows God, David knows his sin. This knowledge is the basis of this psalm, this plea for forgiveness. I want to focus on those two things this morning. What, what David knows about God, I'm going to look at two things, and what David knows about his sin, looking at primarily three 
things. So what does David know about God? The most striking feature probably of this psalm, the one that stands out to people, I think the most, is verse 4. David's very straightforward, but a little bit surprising confession. He's speaking to God and he says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Think about that. David's not referring here to Uriah the Hittite. He's not referring to Bathsheba or anyone else caught up in his evil deeds. He's talking to God. Against you, you only have I sinned. Now we've read this story again as part of our Old Testament reading the last two weeks from 2 Samuel chapter 11, chapters 11 and 12. You know, there's that, uh, that old love poem, How Do I Love Thee, Let Me Count the Ways. With David, we can look at these two chapters and go, David, how did you sin? Let me count the ways. There are many. He did not turn away from temptation when it arose, when he saw Bathsheba on the roof. Not only did he not turn away from temptation, he fed that temptation. Who is this woman? Go bring her to me. And then committed adultery with her. Got her pregnant. Well, what do I do about this? Admit it? Oh no, not David. Send Uriah, her husband, home from the, from the battle. Uriah, great to see you. Go home, enjoy your wife. Uriah is too good a man to do that. How can I do that when my brothers are out fighting in the fields? Tries to bribe Uriah with a gift. That doesn't work. So he gets Uriah drunk. Maybe if I get him drunk, he'll go home and be with his wife. The son can be attributed to him. Well, all this plotting didn't work, so he sends Uriah back with a letter to Joab to put him in the hottest part of the battle, withdraw, and let him be killed. Except it's not just letting Uriah be killed. It's murder. Deliberate, calculated, cold-blooded, cold-hearted murder. This is David, the man after God's own heart. Surprising, shocking tries to cover up his adultery by marrying the poor, sorrowful widow, maybe thinking that the timing is such that people will think the child was legitimately his. David, how did you sin? Let us count the ways. Temptation, adultery, plots, scheming, bribes, murder, lies. He sinned against Bathsheba, against Uriah, against Joab. And against all the people of Israel as he engaged in a public lie. And yet, despite all this, David knows in his heart of hearts that who he's really sinned against is God. Think of the words of Nathan to him. How have you done this thing against me, this detestable thing? He's rebelled against God. Nathan tells him very clearly, you have despised the word of God. To do what is evil. Why do we avoid dealing with sin directly? Well, because it's uncomfortable. (laughs) Who wants to admit their own sin? 
It would force us to acknowledge God, acknowledge that we're in rebellion against Him and His law, subject to His just judgment and consequences of, of our sin, ultimately death. It's easier to brush it off. Oh, it was just a mistake. Sorry I offended you. Oops. Let me make up for it. Or it's easier to turn to rituals and religion. Let me buy back the favor of the deity by doing these oblations and bringing these gifts and making these sacrifices and going through these acts of contrition, prayers and bowings and scrapings. David doesn't take that easy road. He admits his sin is ultimately, as all sins are ultimately, a sin against God and a rebellion against God himself. So David knows this. He knows he is guilty, and he knows he deserves punishment. David knows he sinned against God, but there's another thing he knows about God as well. (laughs) He knows that God is a God of mercy, a covenant God full of steadfast love for his people. And David appeals to that mercy at the very beginning of his prayer in verse 1. And this forms the basis, the foundation for the rest of the psalm. Have mercy on me, O God, not according to the fact that I deserve it, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. He appeals to God's character, who God is, that God is a God of mercy and that God loves his people with a steadfast love. This is a prayer then for us as God's people. When we find ourselves embarrassed by, caught in our sin, to appeal to the the God of mercy, admitting it, but knowing that he loves us and cares for us. David can make that appeal. And we can make that appeal because we have that unique covenant relationship with God. And so this is a prayer. Sorry, it's a prayer for Christians and for Christians only. Remember what Paul writes about in Romans 8 that we read earlier. Certain things are for Christians and only for those who have the Spirit in them. And this is one of those things. If you haven't turned to God in repentance and faith, you don't get his mercy and love, which is very contrary to the popular attitudes of of today. God loves his people. We have that word we've talked about so often, chesed, the covenant love, the steadfast, abundant love of God for his people. That's the basis upon which David can go and ask for mercy. And it's the basis upon which he receives mercy. Only believers have that relationship through repentance and faith, turning to Christ for the hope of their salvation. If you want to pray this psalm, you've got to be a Christian. Either you've come or you need to come. It's a wonderful psalm. And David knows that God is, uh, that he sinned against God. He knows that God is a God of mercy, but he also knows his own sin. And he writes about it very profoundly. Three things. He knows the guilt of his sin. Oh, he's guilty. He also acknowledges the power of sin. And he also realizes that sin pollutes, corrupts, poisons, 
And he asks for relief from all three of these conditions. The guilt of his sin, the power of his sin, and the pollution of his sin. David knows he's guilty. He knows he needs pardon, just like any guilty criminal, or he's going to get punished. But he asks for something, even, even more than pardon. Pardon means we got you, you're si- you, you, you sinned, uh, you're guilty, but we're going to waive the punishment. David asks for something even more than that. He asks for God to take away his sins completely, to blot out his transgressions, right there even in verse 1. Blot out my transgressions. Make them as if they never happened in your sight. Not just pardoned, but gone, as if they never happened. Same idea is there in verse 9. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Again, like they don't even exist before the face of God. Take them away from your mind. Verse 14, the same idea again. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. Take away my guilt. It's not just any guilt, it's blood guilt. I murdered someone, I killed somebody. This is the foundation of his request for forgiveness. It's the beginning of dealing with sin. This is what we call, theologically, justification. God takes my sins and wipes them out. They're gone. Utterly and completely gone. Wiped away. Removed as far as the east is from the west, as high as the heavens are above the earth. He remembers them no more replaced by the gift of righteousness that comes from God and from God alone, and a restored relationship with him. David can ask then in verse 11 that he would not be cast away from the presence of God and that his Holy Spirit would not be taken from him. Blot out my sins, blot out my transgressions. Do not take your Holy Spirit away. Restore my relationship with you. Again, he knows he needs this because it's against God and God only that he has sinned. So he looks to God in repentance and faith and talks about and receives what we expand upon in the New Testament. Justification. His sins wiped out, replaced by the righteousness, the favor of God, the Holy Spirit of God. Well, he needs more than that because sin is powerful. David, a man after God's own heart, gave in to sin. Not just gave into it, but cultivated it. He plotted. He wrote letters. He had to sit down and write a letter with this plan. It wasn't just some spontaneous thing. We, we fall into spontaneous things, and those are sins, and those are embarrassing enough. David thought about this. This was premeditated. Sin is powerful. David was under its power as well. It's the same thing again that Paul writes about in Romans 7 and 8. The power of sin. I don't do the things I know that I should do. I do the things I know that I shouldn't do. Who can deliver me from this body of death? David confesses in verse 5 that he was born in sin, brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So sin is the very... Is part of the very nature of David's being, his humanity. 
He needs his nature changed so that sin will no longer have power over him. And so David asks for a clean heart in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Make me new. What we heard from 2 Corinthians 5.17 in our assurance of pardon. Make me a new creation. Take away the power of sin in my life. Again in verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Now a spirit that is willing to obey you. Willing to follow you. Not willing to, to plot and scheme and rebel. But willing to do what you've called me to do. And he talks about what kind of a spirit, a willing spirit is. It's a broken spirit. Verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise a broken and a contrite heart. A heart that sorrows over its own sin is a heart that's ready to be made willing to follow God in his holiness. That's what brokenness is. It's not a synonym for sin. It's the power of of a spirit-generated sorrow over the reality of our sin so that we seek to follow God instead. David knows the magnitude of his sin. The way he describes it in verse 3 is very telling. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. I cannot escape it. It's right here. Again, it's Paul in Romans 7 doing the things that he knows he shouldn't do. My sin is ever before me. The magnitude of my sin is great. But his heart is being changed. He's requesting a clean heart, a broken and contrite spirit so that he can be renewed and strengthened and respond with joy and thanksgiving to the work that God has done for him. Verse 15, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise for the work that you have done in me and done for me. This again is what we have. We talk about it formally. This is sanctification, breaking the power of sin in our lives. Justification restores us to our relationship with God. We're acceptable to him now. We can be in his presence. He is our God and we are his people. But the power of sin needs to be broken in us. David asked for it. A thousand years before Christ and his work, David knows he needs the power of sin broken in him. He needs to be sanctified. We ask and request the same thing as believers so that we might be molded into the image of of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, David knows one other thing about sin. He knows that it's disgusting. Sin's pollution. It's evil. It's ugly. It's a pollution that needs to be cleaned up. And so David asks for this as well. Verse 2. Attend to me, answer me. No, that's Psalm 55. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I'm polluted. I'm stained. Take it out. Get rid of it. Wash me thoroughly. Not just a little bit. 
not just my hands, ritually, get it all gone. <coughs> Cleanse me thoroughly from my sin. <coughs> In verse 7, he says, purge me with hyssop. This has ceremonial overtones. We talked about this on uh, Good Friday evening when uh, we talked about the, the seven last words of Christ, the hyssop branch that was brought to him, the ceremonial cleansing. Here, David asks for that. Wash me so that I might be whiter than snow. Make me clean. Again, create in me a clean heart, O God. Cleanse it of the ugliness and evil of sin. Ugly and evil in the sight of God against whom he has sinned. Don't just take away the guilt. Don't just take away the power, but take away the stain of it because I can't stand it. And I want to be clean. <clears throat> willing to make a small progress in that cleaning in this life. What makes us clean ultimately? Revelation is clear. Chapter 21, verse 27. Only those things that are pure can enter into the holy city. How do we get there if in this life we die without being completely cleansed? Well, again, we have a doctrine that addresses that, glorification. At death, God removes all the remaining stain of sin from us and makes us holy and pure so that we can enter into his presence immediately. We're not just legally declared righteous and clean. We're not just broken from the power of sin, but we're made pure and holy and clean. David understands all these things. He understands who God is. He understands what his sin is and what it needs. And so he looks to that final act of God to cleanse us. I think it's implied there at the end of the psalm. He's looking to God in verses 18 and 19 to, to build up the walls of Jerusalem and to do good in Zion. And then will be right sacrifices before God. He talks about burnt offerings and bulls and things sacrificed on the altar. But I think this is looking forward to that, that time when Zion, when Jerusalem really will be cleansed, the holy city that comes down. David doesn't see it the way John sees it in Revelation but I think he anticipates this. Sacrifice isn't the answer. A broken and contrite heart is the answer. Broken and made whole and clean by God himself. That only makes sense in eternity. Partially in the foretaste of eternity that we have now as believers. So when Romans 12.1 says to present ourselves as living sacrifices, we should be thinking of this psalm. What does it mean to be a living sacrifice? It means to be someone whose guilt of sin has been pardoned, blotted out, from whom the power of sin has been taken away, and one who is being cleansed, whose heart is broken. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. David looks forward to this, and he will not be silent. Again, verses 13 and 15, David's response 
He can't just keep it to himself. He's got to share it with others. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. If you've experienced the forgiveness of God for your sin, if you know the power of his cleansing work in you, how can you not respond the way David does? Not just with the praise of verse 15, declaring what he has done, but also sharing with transgressors. We talked about having mercy and compassion last week from Psalm 73. Do we really want others caught up in the guilt of their own sin? Would it not be better for them to hear the good news of forgiveness that God offers in Christ Jesus? The psalm teaches us to embrace the same attitude that David has, to praise God for his deliverance, but also to be eager and willing to teach other sinners your way so that they will return to God. Now, is that how other people see the church? Not often. We condemn sin. We criticize sin. We're angry about sin. Now, we have a right to be in in many ways. Don't get me wrong. But do they see that we want to save them from their sin? That there's an answer for the sin? That they can be rescued from the consequences of their sin? Do they see us as willing to help them overcome that? If they don't, we got a problem. Again, what do you do with your sin? Well, the thing to do, the right thing to do is to admit it, to confess it to God, like David, to appeal to his mercy and to his steadfast love, especially as it's shown to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ, his Son. That leads to the second question. Who is this Jesus? Well, he's the one who lived and died in our place to save us from the guilt and power and pollution of sin. And his work is yours by grace alone and through faith alone. It cannot be bought, it cannot be earned. That leads to the third question. Do you believe? Do you believe? Let me pray for us. Lord God and Father in heaven, we are grateful, thankful that you've shown mercy to us. We do acknowledge that our sins are sins against you. We pray that you would remove the power of sin from our lives. Thankful that you have blotted out our transgressions and ask that you would cleanse us as well. Make us whiter than snow as well. Work your power in us through the cleansing and powerful work of the Holy Spirit. Continue that work. Increase our faith, increase our joy, increase our praise, and increase our witness to those around us as well. Father, we can't do this in our own strength, in our own ability, in our own wisdom. So we ask that you would guide us and lead us, empower us and equip us to do the things that you have called us to do. All of this we ask that you would do in the name of and for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and for his glory. Amen.